0: Madeline, the bookmark should already be there in your Bible, 1 Corinthians. Okay, we, we put the bookmark in the page ahead of church this morning so she could find it right away. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are, this is the third through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Paul is writing to a group of people that he knows and loves, and he's writing a letter to them. This is a letter that they would have received and read, and so Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, brothers, brothers and sisters, he's, he's making it clear that I'm one of you, we're family together. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me, this is an interesting verse, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. What's going on there? Chloe's people? Are these like tattletales? It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brother. Can you imagine a church where there was quarreling? It's hard for me to imagine. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Paul's the one who's writing this book, right? Paul might have wanted to feel a little bit of pride in that. Like, some of you follow me. Or, I follow Apollos. Or, I follow Cephas. And by the way, Cephas is another name for whom? Do you know who this is referring to? Peter, right? The the Apostle Peter. Is Christ divided out amongst you? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Or were you baptized in my name? I thank God I didn't, I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Verse 16 is a parenthesis. This is interesting. You remember how, look back in verse 16, Let's see here, verse 1. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Paul is writing this letter with Sosthenes. Here's, here's my guess as to what happens, as what happened here. Paul's writing, and remember, Sosthenes is, is very likely the one who's actually writing the words down as Paul is dictating them. And Paul goes, "I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name." And I think Sosthenes goes, "Wait a second, didn't you baptize, um, didn't you baptize the house of Stephanus?" And Paul's like, "Oh yeah, uh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else." This gives me a little bit of encouragement. Paul maybe had a memory, someone like mine. I don't know. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest, look up here, lest the cross, this is going to be part of my illustration this morning, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Father, would you please help us this morning to understand your word. I pray that we would, we would see The critical value, the the critical importance of finding our individual and collective identity in the cross of Christ and in nothing else. Help us, please. Help me to communicate these truths from your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love hunting. Did you know that? I'm really proud of the beavers kids. What'd you do yesterday? They took their hunter safety course yesterday. I congratulate them. Just, mom and dad beavers, man, discipleship, one I'm just proud of you. This is an example of a Christian family right here, brothers and sisters. My own children actually haven't taken hunter safety yet. So here I am being a hypocrite. I love hunting. In the world of hunting, in the world of hunting, uh, there are, there's a growing number of personalities, of, of like famous hunters. Right, Some of you are rolling your eyes and some of you are tuning in right now. And these different personalities are known for their different emphases. They're all hunters, but they, they kind of are known for different yeah, emphases in the hunting world. Hudson, what's one of our favorites? Who's the guy? Remember his name? Yeah, Stephen Rinella. Stephen Rinella, he's one of the most popular hunters out there right now. He kind of advocates this free-range, public land, fair chase, not too concerned about how big the rack on an animal is. It's all about, um, he's, he's the guy with the show called Meat Eater. Some of you have heard of this, right? Some of you are disciples, devotees of meat eater, right? And he always cooks whatever he's, whatever he's been in pursuit of. And sometimes he cooks stuff that no one should cook. He has a separate show called Pardon My Plate. Is it not working? Okay. Um, he's got a separate show called Pardon My Plate. It might be in the back. The back receiver might not be on, but that's okay. Um, where they, they will harvest and then cook all the things that you and I know better than to eat and cook, right? So yes, they've done coyote. And possum and skunk. Yeah. So but Stephen Rilla is kind of known for, hey, make sure as long as you eat whatever you, you hunt. There's another guy named Cameron Haynes. Cameron Haynes is a is probably the most popular bow hunter right now. And he this guy's like a fitness guru. His whole mantra is run, lift, shoot. And every day he runs you know, 50 miles, and then he shoots his bow, or he lifts weights and pumps iron, and then he shoots his bow however many times, you know, and this is, this is his thing. And there's a bunch of people who are like in the fitness world and in the hunting world, and they, they're they devotees, they're followers, they're disciples of Cameron Haynes. And then there's, there's another guy who's really popular named Michael Waddell. And Michael Waddell, he's kind of like the redneck hunter, right? Like, his, on his show, he starts in the morning and he's eating biscuits and gravy right, before someone drives him in a truck out to the blind, and he climbs up in the blind and turns on the heater, and then he's got his arsenal of weaponry, right, and he can shoot any kind of critter that comes out with, right, like this guy, he's not lifting weights except, you know, to get his, his own weight up into the tree stand, right, so there are these, there, and I'm, this is just a smattering, but there's these three different guys, and they kind of each emphasize three slightly different things, and each of them each have kind of a following, Right, you've got the cook what you eat. You've got the run and lift and shoot, run the mountains. You got to be a, you've got to be an Olympic athlete in order to really be a real hunter. And then this guy's over here, like, man, are we am just going to kill whatever we can and cook it and, and put gravy on top. Right. So, so you got these three different kinds of hunters. And do you know what happens in the hunting world? You already know where I'm going with this because we already read the passage this morning. What happens amongst those three different groups of hunters? They start to fight don't they? And, and this, this group over here says, well, our way of doing hunting is the best way, is the purest way, is the truest way. And this group says, no, that's ridiculous. This is the best way, the truest way, the purest way. And this group over here you know, says, no. And, and, and this, I'm, some of you are like, yeah, I actually know that this is a reality. And others of you are like, man, you guys have too much time on your hands. This is not that important. I want to use, though, this morning a silly illustration to illustrate something that's of life and death significant importance. See, just like in the hunting world, there's one world of hunting, but there are these groups that have gotten around personalities that now are, though they would actually, they should agree with each other, they actually have splintered and are now fighting with each other brothers and sisters. You know that what I'm describing happens in the church all the time, and it's actually part of what Paul is writing to address here in the Corinthian church. And here, my main point is the main point from uh, the Apostle Paul this morning. uh, In the passage that we're looking at here, Paul is saying this, and I'm going to say this for us, please be unified in Christ. Please be unified in Christ. And you might think it's kind of weird that you're using the word please, like Shouldn't it be, you must be unified in Christ? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you in this passage where I think Paul is actually pleading with these people. He's, well, if you look in verse one, I appeal to you. That's where I'm getting the word please. Please, please be unified in Christ. And we're going to walk through this passage and see three things. First, we're gonna see Paul's appeal for unity. Secondly, we're going to see Paul address disunity. And then thirdly, we're going to see him argue for unity. So an appeal for unity an address of disunity, and thirdly, an, an, an argument for unity. First of all, we see here in verse 10, Paul is he's appealing for unity. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Here he, he's starting with, it's like he's saying, please. He's starting with an appeal. He's asking them to please do something, to please consider something. Paul's not starting heavy-handed. He's starting with an appeal. And he's even starting with a reminder of of who they are in relationship to him. Brothers, brothers and sisters, my, my family members, please be unified. He refers to them as family. And Paul is calling for unity Based on the unity that he's just finished explaining in verses one through nine, you remember verses one through nine? We talked about that last week. It was a long time ago, so it might be hard for us to remember. We look in verses one through nine, and we see in verse four. We'll just jump jump back in and, and look at a couple uh, parts of it here. I give thanks to God, to my God, always for you, because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul starts verse 10, right after verse 9, where he said, God has called you all into fellowship, so please act unified. Please live out the unity that Christ has secured for you. And he uses several different phrases that are very synonymous with each other. Uh, all of you agree, no divisions, united. This first phrase, that all of you agree, it literally means this, that all of you say the same thing. That, that's, that the Greek phrase there is that you would all say the same thing. When it comes to what you know to be true about the cross of Jesus Christ, I'm appealing to you all to say the same thing. And already in verses one through nine, he's given a lot of doctrine. All of you say the same thing about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done the second phrase, that there be no divisions. Again, that Greek word there is where we get the word schism. Schismata is the, is the Greek word. Schisms or divisions. Don't let there be schisms and, and broken uh, class divisions among you, but be unified in your mind and in, in the, and, and the application of your mind. Be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. God wants, Paul wants, the people of Corinth to adjust their thinking so that they're all thinking the same way and the same thing about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done. And again, we look at the appeal that Paul's making here, and we're inclined to think, Paul, obviously it's obvious that this is a, that he, you're talking to the early church, like one of the first churches ever, because if you'd have been around, Paul, as long as we've been around, you would know that what you're asking for is impossible, there is no such thing as a church that is completely in agreement and, that there's, and where there's no divisions and that, we, and that everyone is united in, in, the, in their mind and in their judgment. But Paul actually has been around long enough. He's been around long enough to know exactly how human hearts work and how already in Corinth people have begun dividing. Now, how did he find out? This leads us to point number two, the address of disunity. Look at verse 11. I think it's an interesting verse. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, again, remember, this book is a letter that Paul is writing to the people in Corinth. And do you remember this, that he's writing a letter in response to a letter that they've written to him? So the people, the church at Corinth write Paul a letter with many of the problems that they're facing, and they want his judgment. They want his help on this. But I think it's interesting that they forgot to include the whole disunity problem. Because Paul is saying, you didn't write to me about the problem of disunity. I heard about this problem. I heard about this problem from a third party. I heard about this problem from another source from Chloe's people. And many scholars believe that this Chloe's people thing, that Chloe was likely a very prominent businesswoman in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, again, is where Paul is writing the letter of 1 Corinthians from. He's in the city of Ephesus. He's writing a letter back to the, the church at Corinth. And Chloe, very likely, we don't know this for sure, but many scholars think this is a, would be a very reasonable explanation of who Chloe is and what's going on here. Chloe is a very well-to-do businesswoman in the city of Ephesus, and she has, she has contacts, or she may even have employees in the city of Corinth. And Chloe goes to church there in Ephesus with Paul, and Chloe's, some of Chloe's people have been attending the church there in Corinth, and they found out that, man, there's all this division. And these people come back, and they're reporting to Chloe, boy, there is a lot of disunity in the church at Corinth. And so now Paul talks with Chloe or with Chloe's people and finds out there's a lot of disunity that's going on. Paul finds out about their factionalism through Chloe's people. I don't think these were just tattletales. I think these were people who loved the church at Corinth and wanted to see it flourish and report back to Paul, hey, you got problems up there in Corinth. And what they report in verse 11 is that there's quarreling among you. Now, we're getting ready to find out one of the sources of their quarreling, but let's not jump there too quickly. I've joked about it already a couple of times this morning, but isn't it a little bit sad that like the joke about churches quarreling within themselves is something that we all just immediately kind of know about? We're, we're, all, we're all like, yeah, yeah, that happens. Isn't it a little bit sad that we kind of assume that's how God's church and that's how God's people are going to act. Brothers and sisters, a display of disunity is, is, a, is an attack on the effective work of the gospel. That's why Paul is so concerned. I mean, it is the first thing that he's leading out with in his letter. Now, I don't know if Paul puts things in an order of importance but if he did, he's leading out with, look, there's disunity amongst you. Let's, let's fix that. That's not okay. It, it, it does not display what the gospel is intended to display. There's, there's quarreling, there's fighting, and this fighting is related to personalities. One commentator says this, It needs to be said that both then in Corinth and generally today, Division and disunity arise because the eyes of Christians are elsewhere than on Jesus Christ. That that the eyes of Christians are elsewhere than on Jesus Christ. Now, um, here's how I want to try to illustrate this. Can I get like um, six or eight people just to help me out and volunteer here up here? And, and any kids that want to can come and do it. Okay, but I just need like, I, okay, I just need a, f- a bunch of people real quick, okay my kids I 'm volunteering my kids, Nathaniel and Fabian I 'm volunteering you guys to come up here, Walker, come on up here. Uh, they're, they're, I won 't get too many that's okay. Come on up here, come on up here, come on up here, come on up here. Great, thank you. All right, good, good. Adeline, come on. okay, now imagine this with me I 'm using kids because they're, they're, they're better at um, not feeling embarrassed. Do you feel embarrassed? Okay, good. see, I told you they don 't feel embarrassed. Now, imagine, imagine that we're here, that we're the Corinthian church, okay? That we are, that we're all together, that we live in the city of Corinth, and that Paul came and he got our church started. And, and throughout the years, we've gotten uh, some visits from Paul and some letters from Paul. And then there was another guy named Apollos who came, and he was a really great preacher. Um, and he came and visited us, and then we've even gotten a visit from Cephas, Peter. He's come and visited us as well. And so we've had some really great, some of the leading Uh, Christian preachers of the day have come and visited our church, okay? And let's pretend that you are Paul. And let's pretend that you are Apollos. And let's pretend that you are Cephas, okay? I don't know what the girl version names of those are, okay? So you three come and stand right here at the foot of the cross, right? Right, okay, so, and now the rest of us, I want you to go stand by your favorite person up there. Pick different ones. Just go stand by somebody. Put your hand, put your hand on someone up here. Okay, put your hand on someone. Just touch them, touch them. Yep, touch them. You come over here, Adeline. You touch Evangeline. You touch Elise. Put your hand on them. Okay, now each of these individuals are saying, this is the guy that we like. Now, I want you three to each put your hand on the cross. Okay, the three leaders, right? Yep, there you go. Move. Okay. So the three leaders are saying, we, We're connected to Christ. We're unified in Christ. We want everyone to be unified in Christ. But what, what happens is the individuals in the church are saying, Man, we really like this person. Oh, we really like this person. Oh, we really like this person. Okay. Go, everybody go sit down, but I'm going to call you all back up here in just a minute. Okay. You can go have a seat. In the city of Corinth, here's what was happening. Look in verse 12. What I mean is, so Paul's making it clear, look, there's quarreling among you. Let me explain exactly what I mean. You're not just fighting over something random. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or the really spiritual ones in the group. I don't follow man. I follow Christ. This is a big deal in Corinth. In Corinth, in the city of Corinth, okay, outside of the church walls of Corinth, the city of Corinth was known to be a very wise city, an eloquent city. There were philosophers there and orators there. And people in the town, unbelieving people in the town of Corinth, they would have their favorite speaker of the day. They would have their favorite philosopher or their favorite orator, and they would gather around, so-and-so is my favorite, he's so eloquent, or so-and-so is my favorite, he's so smart, he's so wise. And so in the city of Corinth, this kind of thing was a big deal, and it worked its way into the church, where people in the church began to say, so-and-so is my favorite, or so-and-so is my favorite, or so-and-so is my favorite. These got, they got three different so-and-sos here. And it doesn't seem like, in this passage, it doesn't seem like their division was based on theological differences. It wasn't that you believe this and I believe this. It was you like that guy and I like this guy. Likely it had to do with the style and delivery or the emphasis of the speaker. And instead of them finding their identity and in their unity and their relationship with Christ through the cross of Christ, they wanted someone else to identify with. This has been a human problem from the beginning. Do you remember that Israel wanted a human king? They didn't want just to have God. They wanted a human king with whom to identify. We want, we want a human representative. One um, author says this, seeking validation in something outside of yourself is a very common phenomenon. People tend to attach themselves to individuals, causes, industries, dreams that give them a vision of the world as they think it should be. And isn't that true? Don't you know that, that different people, us, we like to identify ourselves according to certain other groups. We, we identify with individuals or causes or industries, right? Certain ways of eating, certain ways of exercising, certain ways of educating, certain ways of parenting, certain ways of farming, certain ways of ranching, certain, right? Like, and we like to identify as, well, I do it this way. I follow the so-and-so method. Well, in Corinth, there was Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And I think we know enough about these three guys that we can understand why people would follow one of these three. And, and as, as I've studied through this, it's clear that, that Paul and Apollos and Cephas all very likely visited the church at Corinth and or wrote letters to the church at Corinth. So these were people that this church was familiar with. And Paul, obviously, is the one who had founded the church. Paul was a very well-educated Jewish Pharisee who God turned to be a follower of Him, and then there was Apollos. And Apollos described as a man who was mighty in the Scripture and very eloquent. He was a powerful speaker. Paul is a very educated um, uh, uh, Christian leader. Apollos is a very articulate Christian leader. And Peter, Peter's like the blue collar every man. I just say whatever comes to mind, you know. Like uh, um, Peter, Peter, I think has that kind of common man um, appeal. And so you've got Paul, and you've got Apollos, and you've got Peter, and and they've visited the Corinthian church, and people start to kind of, well, you know who I really, you know, I mean, Apollos came and visited last month, but man, you know who I really love, who really resonates with me, man, it's that Paul guy. Paul, man, I'm I'm really I'm a follower of Paul. I'm really into Paul. You know, out in the world, there's the orators and the and the philosophers of the day. Well, you know, I'm going to reject that that. Uh, the secular thinking of the day, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna follow this one individual here within the church. And there were those who tried to rise above all of that. Right? Well, you're following Paul, and you're following Apollos, and you're following Cephas. And we might think, well, the people who said I follow Christ, like they're the ones to be commended, right? But the problem was they were using Christ as another way. To show that they were better than everyone else, and they they were divided from everyone else. I remember years ago, um, uh, uh, as uh, being kind of in um, circles that were known. Uh, we identified as fundamentalists. We were we were fundamentalists. We believed the fundamentals of the scripture, and 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 there was uh, some growing dissatisfaction with that term. And other people they said, "Well, I will tell you what, we're we we're going to identify ourselves as biblicists." And, and it, was, it was like this, it was this same kind of thing happening in that arena where like, well, we just want to find a term that makes it clear that we're the ones who are right and everyone else is wrong. And I think that's what's happening here when the people who said that I follow Christ, they were saying, you guys, everyone else has it wrong. We're the ones. We're the ones who have it right. And the people there in Corinth, they were, they were using one of these three or four men to kind of set themselves apart, to identify themselves with, and really to even be like a patron saint. Are you familiar with patron saints? Some of you are very familiar with patron saints, right? The idea of like, this saint is my advocate in heaven. And so these Christian believers were like, well, I identify with Paul, or I identify with Apollos, or I identify with Cephas, I identify with Jesus, and, and they're kind of my patron. But brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't a patron. He's the Savior. Now, thankfully, in the church today, we don't have this problem. We don't do this kind of thing at all, ever. Yeah, right, right? I'm of MacArthur. I'm of Piper. I'm of Baucom. I'm of Keller. I'm of Sproul. I'm of Moler. I'm of, you can just keep naming your names, right? And to say that I'm of so-and-so means I'm also against these other people. We have, we, have, we have systems of belief based on human names. I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. You know, those are, those are guys' names, right? Jacobus Arminius and John Calvin, right? And people have built entire systems of theology and then identified themselves accordingly and have fought with each other for hundreds of years now using men's names to do so. We have entire denominations that are built this way, right? Lutheran. Martin Luther was a wonderful reformer. Wesleyan. John Wesley was a wonderful reformer. Mennonite. Menno Simons was a wonderful Christian man. But then we take these men and we identify with those men. And so just like the children were gathered around here, there were three of them that were touching the cross and then there were a bunch of them who weren't touching the cross. And because they weren't identifying with the cross, they were disunified. And brothers and sisters, when we don't identify with Jesus Christ and the cross work of Jesus Christ, we'll fail to be unified as well. So here's where I'm leading to point number three. Paul's argument for unity. Verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Well, let's just back up and answer these questions as we go. Is Christ divided? First, an obvious answer to that is no. Jesus Christ is not divided. There is one Christ. There is one Savior. Was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul hang on a cross to save you from your sin? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Nope, weren't baptized in the name of Paul. Baptized you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Baptism by one of these spiritual leaders had apparently become a way of identifying yourself. I'm of Apollos. I mean, he came and preached that sermon, and I got saved, and I got baptized by him. I am of Apollos. I'm, I'm of Cephas. He preached that sermon. Man, I mean, there's never been a more powerful sermon preached here in Corinth, and I got baptized by him that day. Paul is actually saying he didn't baptize Many people, and that he's glad he didn't baptize many people. Verse seventeen, by, by the way, brothers and sisters, is an important. Uh, it, it's an important passage here, um, verses fourteen through seventeen. I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, etc. Verse seventeen, I did not. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There are some throughout history who have believed that baptism is a necessary part of salvation, that if you're going to actually be saved, you have to be baptized. And I think this is there are a lot of passages that I think help support that, but this passage is one of the passages that it makes it clear where Paul is saying, look, I'm actually glad that I didn't baptize a bunch of you. Well, if baptism was necessary for salvation, that would be a ridiculous thing for Paul to say. Baptism and preaching the gospel would have been glued right to each other, and any time Paul would have presented the gospel, he would have been baptizing those that had gotten saved. So verse 17 is significant for those who hold to what's called baptismal regeneration. That's the belief that the physical act of baptism is necessary to actually being saved. If that were the case, Paul wouldn't separate the preaching of the gospel and the baptism of those to whom he had preached it. So that's kind of a little bit of a side note there. The gospel of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is a unifying message. And greater understanding and adherence to it will bring greater and greater unity. One commentator says this, their disunity is the very antithesis of their fellowship with the son and status as God's holy people. That's why Paul is addressing this first right out of the gate as one of the most important things, one of the most significant problems that's facing the church at Corinth. He's saying, look, you're you're disunified. Like you're living in a way that is contrary to the confession that you actually make that Jesus Christ is your Lord. If Jesus Christ is your Lord, then you have to display unity. So here's here's the most succinct way that I know how to talk about unity amongst believers. And look, I recognize we're in a Baptist church, which means we're not in a Presbyterian church, which means we're not in a Methodist church or we're not in a non-denominational church. Denominations exist because we live in a broken world and we can't figure everything out, and so we end up with different denominations. I don't think in heaven there's going to be different denominations. I don't think we're going to all hey let's get hey we're having a Baptist meeting tonight. Why don't you guys come over? You know, don't tell the Methodists we don't want them here anyway. Right? Like, it's ridiculous. We're not. It's not how it's going to be. You've heard the joke, right? I think I think all of you have heard the joke. If you come to the Life at Liberty class, you've already heard the joke um, uh, that. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul is welcoming new people into heaven and he's, as he's kind of giving them the tour, there's always one door that he walks past and he says, shh, let's be quiet as he walks past that door and then he goes on throughout the rest and giving the tour. And then every time he brings someone new in, he says, shh, you know, as he, as he walks past that door and someone finally says, why are we being quiet while we walk past that door? And he says, well, that's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here, right? That, that, that Unfortunately, unfortunately there, are some, there are even some Baptists who feel that way. Brothers and sisters, here's kind of the shocking, scandalous thing that I want to say to you. If you will be in heaven with someone, then you must display unity with them here on earth. If you will be with someone in heaven, then you must display unity with them here on earth. You must. If you are going to be in heaven with them, here's what that means. That means that Jesus Christ has died for their sins and has made them part of the family of God, just like you. And if God has objectively unified you and made you brothers and sisters, then we have to act like it. Now, that doesn't mean that, okay, let's just erase all denominational lines and all theological lines. Like we... We live in a fallen world. We're doing our best to figure out who are we supposed to baptize and when are we supposed to baptize them and who gets to take the Lord's Supper and what, how does God work in salvation? And some, We can't always agree on everything. Being unified doesn't mean that we are unanimous. I mean, like I, my wife and I agree on almost everything. There's a lot of stuff that we actually aren't in agreement on. There's no two human beings that are going to be totally the same. God wouldn't have needed to make one of us, right, if, we, if so, so to be unified doesn't mean u- unanimity. It doesn't mean that we think exactly the same thing all the time. But here's the deal. If you have put faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has made you part of the family of God, we are unified. We are unified. We are unified. Objectively speaking, we are unified. If I'm going to be in heaven with you, then there must be some measure of unity that I can display here on earth. There's something here in this passage that's even greater than the fact that you and I can have unity. The main argument that Paul is making is that you and I can have unity, but there's something underneath that that's almost unbelievable. If the Bible didn't teach it to us, we would, it would be unbelievable. Yes, you and I can have unity, but you know what is amazing? That you can have unity with God through Christ. See, that's the amazing thing. That's the thing that Paul is amazed with. That's the thing that Paul is trying to remind the Corinthian church to be amazed with. Paul knows that that's what will bring unity within each other. As they they realize, I can actually come to the cross and have unity with God through the work that Jesus... I deserve to be separated from God. What I've earned is brokenness and broken relationship with God. The broken relationship that I experience with other people here on this earth, I mean, that's a problem. But the big problem is that I have a broken relationship with God. My sin has separated me from God. And that's why Paul, over and over and over again, is using the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, uh, the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, over and over again, verse 17 Christ sent me to preach the cross of Christ over and over. Paul is saying, here's what's amazing. You can have unity with God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That is amazing. That relationship has been fixed by the work of Jesus Christ. All right, all my volunteers, I need to back up here again. All, my, all the same volunteers, except this time I don't want any of you to touch Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. I just want everybody's hand on the cross. You can come up here on the stage, just everybody's hand on the cross. So brothers and sisters, here's, here's what brings us unity. Do you see what's unifying them? There's one thing that's unifying them. They're different heights, they're different colors, they're different genders, they're different ages. But there's, there's one thing that unifies them. And it's not, oh, I follow, like as soon as, as soon as they take their hands off of the cross and start touching one of the other leaders, disunity. But when, they're, when their personal understanding and their personal identity, look, my hand's on the cross too. So now we're all unified because we are all unified in Christ. Christ in us, us in him. We're related to God through the work of Jesus Christ. And now we're unified. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what it is as soon as we start to unify and clump up around other individuals or other systems of theology or other denominations, we start to disunify. Thanks, guys. You can go have a seat. But when we find our personal identity in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's what allows us to have and display unity. I'm such a problem. I'm such a mess. My sin is such a big deal that God had to kill his son to make me right with him again. That's a humbling thing. And when you have that same understanding in your hands on the cross, and we both are standing here going, neither neither of us deserve to be here. Let's just uh, be really happy that we're here together. And yeah, um, we're going to spend eternity just like this, finding our identity, finding our unity in the cross of Christ. Stephen, Pastor Stephen Um, and his last name is U-M, so I'm assuming I'm pronouncing this right. Stephen Um says this, the vertical fracture in our relationship with God is mended by Jesus Christ who experiences and absorbs the vertical fracture on our behalf. So our relationship with God is fixed by Jesus and our relationship with others in the church is fixed by Jesus. The power of the gospel is the cross of Christ. And look verse 17. It's not even, Paul says, I've, I've come to you to preach this message, and it's not even with like my winsome, my eloquent words. I'm not like all the other Corinthian orators and philosophers. I'm not real good at this. I'm just here telling you, Jesus Christ is the Savior. You're united in him. Live at the foot of the cross. So in conclusion, let me just encourage us with just a few things here. Brothers and sisters, regularly rehearse the glorious news that you've been united to God through Jesus Christ. That will keep you. It will keep you humble. It will keep you happy. And it will keep you holy. Rejoice in the blood-bought unity you objectively have with others. If someone else names Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, if they've turned and trusted in him, you are brothers and sisters. If they won't be in heaven with you, then, then you also know how you're to interact with them, right? Like, if they're going to be in heaven with you, then the right display is unity. If they're not going to be in heaven with you, if they are of a religion that doesn't look to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, well, then you want to explain that to them to bring them to Christ so that you, not so that you can have unity, with, so that they can have unity with Christ and therefore you'll have unity with them as well. So rejoice in the blood-bought unity you objectively have with others that are in Christ. Remember to ask yourself, will I be in heaven with this person? And if so, I must demonstrate unity with them here on earth. Brothers and sisters, please, Jay, can you go back to that first, my main point slide there? Please, please be unified in Christ. You, You are unified in Christ. Act unified in Christ. Express the unity that you have because of what Christ has earned for us. Using our cross illustration here this morning, put your hand on the cross. Find find your identity in the cross, and you will find your unity with other believers. Bow your heads, and we'll close this time of prayer. I'll ask the music team to come, and we'll close with a song here. If you're here this morning, and you think, oh, that's interesting, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure that I actually find my personal identity in the cross. I've never turned from my sin and trusted Jesus as my Savior. Man, do that today. Just repent. You can do it right there in your seat. God, forgive me of my sins. I am trusting in the work that your son Jesus has done for me. Please save me. God will save you. A prayer that simple. In the prayer of your heart, that simple will save you. If you have questions about that, though, man, I'd love to visit and talk with you about that, or one of the other pastors here would love to visit with you about that, or just anything in your heart or life that you want prayer with, that sort of thing, we'll be here after the service this morning to visit with you about that. I think for all of us in here this morning, we need the reminder that our identity is what Christ has done for us, and therefore our unity is because of what Christ has done for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to find our identity, to remember our identity in you. And I pray that we would work toward being a people who express the unity that has been earned for us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, amen. So now let's stand and we'll sing of that Christ together.